It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Sunday, July 17th, 2022. I'm Jared Halpern. Did an early morning tweet spark the Capitol riot? The January 6th committee thinks so. Donald Trump's 1.42 a.m. tweet electrified and galvanized his supporters. I'm Kevin Cork. For some, it's a post-pandemic trend actually worth celebrating. Think of it as a red state renaissance. A lot of workers were able to instantly upgrade their lifestyles, uh, take the same jobs that they had, take the same pay that they had, but go to states that had zero income taxes, that had cheaper housing. And so they all of a sudden were able to just have a higher lifestyle because of the pandemic. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. The tweet that changed everything. That was the crux of this past week's hearing at the House Select Committee investigating last year's January 6th Capitol riot. Early in the morning of December 19th, 2020, then-President Trump sent a tweet letting people know of a big protest in D.C. on January 6th. Be there will be wild, the president wrote. Donald Trump's 1.42 a.m. tweet electrified and galvanized his supporters. That's committee member Maryland Democrat Jamie Raskin, who spent a lot of time this past hearing trying to draw a line between that tweet and the riot that ensued. Stephen Ayers has pleaded guilty to illegally entering the Capitol that day. He told the committee. He basically put out, you know, come to stop the steel rally, you know, and I felt like I needed to be down here. The committee also says that tweet inspired more organized groups to plan for violence like the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys. But was any of it a smoking gun, to use a frequently used phrase here in Washington? For that, we return to the reporting of my colleague on Capitol Hill, Fox News congressional correspondent Chad Pergram. You know, this is probably... Oh, out of the seven, eight hearings they've had, this is probably, you know, in terms of just raw interest, number two or number three after the well, Cassidy Hutchinson hearing. Yeah. And, and, and it raises these questions about whether or not there is uh, potential exposure here by the former president or maybe those around him. Legal exposure here is what yeah. we're dealing with. You know, somebody suggested that sometimes the effort to cover things up is often worse than the crime. That's something we learned from Watergate back in the 1970s. So let's talk about the hearing itself, because you're right. There were a lot of news made. Um, and so two, there, there were sort of two different timelines here that uh, we worked with from the committee's point of view, right? The first half dealt with this late night meeting on December 18th, 2020. So this is after the Electoral College has met, right? And the key thing there is that the Electoral College, they're supposed to have everything settled by the mm-hmm. 14th of December. Yeah. And at that point, you know, people had said, look, you have exhausted all of your legal options under the Constitution. This is this what's called a safe harbor date. 
under the Electoral Count Act, which we can talk about more if you care to. Uh, <laughs> they're trying to reform that right now. Yes. To get uh, have the states get their electoral slates in to Washington, D.C. And at that point, it's pretty much done. All Congress does all, and I'll put that in, in quotations, is certify the yeah. results. I mean, Congress and that is happens the on, on And that happens on, on, on January 6th. But that, th- that right. time between December 14th and January 6th is really just like to get things mailed, right? I mean, there, there's not like much yes, else. Exactly. That's, <laughs> I mean, I have spoken with the Senate parliamentarian, Elizabeth McDonough, about her coming in here one time, I think on Christmas Eve day or Christmas day itself, because one state did not send in things properly one time. Not that, right. not, not this past year, but in years past. So, uh, and because it was so important, she wanted to make sure it was there. You're right. And at that point, it's just up to Congress to certify. That meeting was so critical because then at that stage, you had people in the White House counsel's office, uh, the main White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, mm-hmm. Eric Hirschman, who we've seen a lot of videotape yes. from as well, an assistant counsel, you know, saying, look, Mr. President, OK, you know, the gig is up. And then you have all these people coming in from Rudy Giuliani to and it was funny because they kept referring to him in, in the uh, in the committee, never his his actual name, but the Overstock.com guy. You know, that, that's how they kept referring to him. You had people who were pushing these uh, uh, theories by John Eastman. Yeah. Uh, you had Sidney Powell saying Sydney there Powell. is an option here. And at that point, you know, you had this heated meeting inside the Oval Office that almost came to blows. I mean, Eric Hirschman testified about how he got up off the couch and really got in the uh, up up in the grill of Michael mm-hmm. Flynn. And in fact, at one point, and then we go after midnight. We go to about 1:41 in the morning on December 19th, and that's where President Trump sent that tweet that seemingly lit the fuse. That was right. code to some of these radical groups to get to Washington on January 6th because yeah. in the president's term, it would be wild. And in yeah. fact, it, it was. so preceding that tweet, we, we heard from Jamie Raskin, the Maryland uh, Democrat who has played a big role, not just in this uh, committee, the select committee, but it also played uh, roles in, in the previous impeachments. And he said that this meeting, quote, quickly became the stuff of legend. The meeting has been called unhinged, not normal, and the craziest meeting of the Trump presidency. So that's kind and of that's the background something. that yeah. this committee's trying. And so you point out this tweet. The president uses the phrase, uh, it's going to, to be wild. Um, and then that takes us to the next stage of, of this hearing where the committee tries to draw a link between that tweet and then planning that immediately got underway by groups like the Proud Boys, groups like the Oath Keepers, these other outside groups, right? Right, exactly. And, and this is where they started to talk about, you know, had, you had these groups descending on Washington, D.C., and uh, there was one bit of testimony from the chief of Homeland Security for the District of Columbia, who said you started to have these groups that don't always agree with one another suddenly aligning. And this was some mm-hmm. of the stuff they were seeing in the traffic. And, you know, he testified that this was very alarming and they thought that there was a problem. I think it's interesting because, you know, when I kept checking in with Capitol security officials in the days leading up to January 6th, because things seemed a little bit off to me. And I remember the next morning seeing that tweet and I thought, oh, this is this is, you know, has some consequence to it. This has some oomph to it. And then you started to see so many people pouring into Washington, D.C. I mean, there was even a question about whether or not Washington should cancel the rally. You know, again, you have First Amendment issues here, but you also have public safety concerns. And so, you know, do you do that or not? That was an issue. And then but the people on Capitol Hill, senior people. Jared, with whom I spoke on multiple occasions in the days leading up to January 6th, I don't know if they just weren't being straight with me 
which I don't think was the case. I just don't think that you know anybody conceived that things would spiral out of control like this. I mean, you know, it's often said that 9-11 was a failure of imagination. Mm-hmm. The idea that people would, okay, just learn to fly airplanes, not take off and land, and then execute a plan where you turn these into missiles and ram them mm-hmm. into buildings. Uh, one could argue that January 6th, at least on the security side here in Washington, D.C., was a failure of imagination because nobody seemed to yeah. think, maybe with the exception of the Washington, D.C. Department of Homeland Security and some others, that this was a real threat uh, that was being posed by the sheer mass of humanity and how ginned up they were by the then president of the United States. Well, and, you know, one thing that I'd heard from, and I think we've had similar conversations, is, uh, you know, I've heard and talked in the aftermath of, of January 6th with intelligence folks and, and homeland security and law enforcement folks who have said, listen, that there is a that the hard thing to do is decipher and try and respond to what is aspirational and what is operational. So you see people talking big online and trying to suss out how serious that is. Um, yes, exactly. And so, the, but the question that I have after this, Chad, is so we have the, these two points that the committee makes, right? You have this meeting uh, that got really heated on the 18th, and then you have this early morning tweet thereafter sent by President Trump that apparently gets the attention of these outside groups. That is not a link, though, between the president and these outside groups. Right, exactly. In other words, there's not been anything that the committee has put forward that said, you know, the president ordered It's not a smoking gun. Yeah. There is a little bit of connective tissue there, but it's not. And that's why the committee has said, okay, it was obvious that to them, at least, that what what the president was trying to do was stoke people to come and do this. And so, you know, is that is there culpability? Maybe, maybe not. That's the part that's unclear. They got a little bit closer in that hearing the other day. I was told very early on in this process, Jared, uh, from somebody close to the committee, that they really didn't think that there was going to be uh, th- th- that they didn't think that this was as cut and dry, that, that they had these these wild groups all revved up and they were going to come into town. But uh, the thing that I was left with was how easy it was, the idea that it didn't take much to stoke people to come. And this is why looking to the hearing, uh, you know, next Thursday, the primetime hearing, uh, you know, that the president went dark for 187 minutes during the, you know, the, the, the uh, most uh, severe, serious moments of the riot. And was he, in fact, trying to delay uh, the certification of the Electoral College at that stage? And that was a tactic on his part to kind of get people to, you know, you know, wait it out. And then maybe, you know, something happens in his favor and they don't uh, certify the Electoral College for president. And so that's going to be key. I mean, that that could connect those two things, Frank. But that's what that that is what we expect to hear next week. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And that's uh, Elaine Luria, the Democratic representative from Virginia, will lead that hearing. Let's talk about how this committee is is handling its business, because it it was in the early part of of the committee hearings that we would find out a couple of days beforehand who'd be testifying. That is no longer the case. Why is that? Why is there so much secrecy around exactly who we'll hear from and what we're going to hear about from this committee? Is it simply they are working until the 11th hour and don't know, or is there something more to it? Yes, a little bit of that. Uh, There is some of the stagecraft involved here, too. Uh, There are security concerns. There are witness tampering concerns now, apparently, uh, according to Congresswoman Cheney. So all the above. Uh, That is it. I mean, you you know, we didn't even know who the two witnesses were going to testify Mm -hmm. uh, this past week until just before the hearing, you know, and, and that hearing was light on 
live witness testimony there, you know, Stephen Ayers and Jason Van Tattenhove. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we didn't really know that until I think that morning, frankly. I mean, or, or at yeah. least not publicly. It was kind of announced off stage um, the day before. So, Van Tat- yeah. just to, to clarify, Van Tattenhove is a former member of the Yellow Keepers, a former spokesperson right. who Spokesman. didn't talk much about January 6th, but sort of talked about the thinking of that group. And exactly, then, exactly. A- Stephen Ayers is uh, a rioter who has pled guilty, not affiliated with any of those groups, but described his motivation in, in coming to Washington because of the, the tweets and other messages from, from President Trump. And that's why I say the committee did get a little bit further down the road trying to connect those who actually came to Washington and what their intent was. Uh, the idea when you hear from those two live witnesses and they say, OK, this is why we were involved. This is why I went to the Capitol. I thought it was very interesting that, you know, Ayer said, you know, once the president finally did put out a message, said time to go home, everybody responded. You know, so yeah. so, so that demonstrates the power of the presidency and in particular this president resonating his message with certain groups. Um, and, and again, you know, putting out the idea that this was a code, this was a clarion call, this was a battle cry, get to the Capitol and help us. And, uh, and the fact that you say it's going to be wild. I mean, that's just astonishing language from a sitting president. Uh, that, that's why, you know, when I saw that the next day, I just said, whoa, this is, this is way off the beaten path. And, and frankly, it seemed very dangerous to me at the time. It, you know, something strikes me here, uh, Jared, I went back and looked at the timeline of the Iran-Contra hearings. This is the arms mm. for hostages deal in, in 1987. So this was a joint House-Senate, two different committees, select committees that they merged together and kind of had these hearings together throughout the summer of 1987. Started in early May, ended in early August, and almost every single day it was drip, 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 drip about what happened with the Reagan administration. Now, those hearings were a little bit hard to follow. You had big names come up, Oliver North, uh, you had Richard Secord, you had people like uh, George Schultz, who was the Secretary of State, Casper mm-hmm. Weinberger, who was indicted, later pardoned by Bush 41. You get the idea. But, it, but you kind of had to watch every single one of those hearings to truly get it. And it was very complicated. And I remember uh, talking in the um, winter of 1989, Archibald Cox, who was the uh, special prosecutor uh, in Watergate, was fired uh, by, by Richard Nixon. I interviewed him in Ohio when I was in college. He came to Miami University of Middletown and he said, people will never get Iran-Contra because it is so complicated. It is much more complex than Watergate. This is Archibald Cox, who was fired famously in the Saturday Night Massacre in 1973. Well, if it was hard to follow Watergate and probably much, much harder to follow Iran-Contra because those hearings went out all summer long, you know, it blew out Ryan's hope and as the world turns and everything else, all the soap operas during the day. And this was on a day by day basis here. What this committee has done for good or ill is that they have have distilled this message into these hearings that are easy to follow, even if you don't agree, even if you don't like their approach and their tactics, it is easier to follow. And part of that's because, you know, Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader, withdrew his picks for the Mm -hmm. committee. This committee does not work like a usual congressional committee, and it does make it easier to kind of streamline that message, which is why some people have argued that maybe this is getting through. You've seen support 
for the former president fall among Republicans below 50 percent. That is significant. Uh, and there is some thought that maybe this is getting through to a lot of people that they don't want uh, the former president to run again. And uh, something else that was said to me very early on in this process when they put the committee together last year, they said this is really the third impeachment of Donald Trump. And if you mm-hmm. go back to something Liz Cheney said last year, she said he cannot get anywhere near the Oval Office again. And if that is the approach and that is the tactic and that is the goal, maybe they're getting somewhere. Is it fair? We can quibble about that and debate that, certainly. But in terms of understanding what happened, that is pretty crystal clear. We'll have more of these. Chad, always appreciate your your distillation of these hearings and the historical context that that we should be looking at them through as well. So we will uh, continue to follow these next week, have these conversations as well. Have a great weekend, friend. Thank you. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. Since February 2020, the month before the pandemic struck, Red states have added over 340,000 jobs, while blue states, as of May of this year, were still down more than 1.3 million jobs. That's according to Brookings Institution analysis of Labor Department data. And it's not just that red states have bounced back from the COVID lockdowns faster than their blue state brethren. They've actually managed to siphon their families, jobs, and in many cases, even some of their largest companies. So does it mean we've become the divided states of America, separated into have and have not states? And what of those left behind? I think several things are going on here. Josh Mitchell, the Wall Street Journal, has carefully studied this trend. One of the biggest things is that a lot of workers in high cost cities like New York and San Francisco and Los Angeles, they during the pandemic gained the opportunity to work from home, meaning they could you know, now move to lower cost cities that had cheaper housing, that might have had less traffic, that might have been near the beach, you know, in Florida's panhandle. And so a lot of workers were able to instantly upgrade their lifestyles, uh, take the same jobs that they had, take the same pay that they had, but go to states that had zero income taxes, um, that had cheaper housing. And so they all of a sudden were able to just have a higher lifestyle because of the pandemic and because of work from home. So I think that that's probably the biggest factor, at least that's what the studies say, that people are responding to economic incentives here. And so people left San Francisco, they left New York, they left Los Angeles, and they moved to places like Nashville, Austin, Texas, and Tampa. Yeah, and there's some states that are really doing a lot better with respect to inward migration versus outflow of population. Places like Florida and Texas and North Carolina, as you mentioned, all doing incredibly well. They're red hot with respect to gaining population. And then you look at the states, Josh, that have lost the most residents uh, in particular since the very outset of the pandemic, and they're almost all blue. We're talking about California, New York, and Illinois. And I think there's something else at, at play here, and I want to get your take on it. Yes, it is cheaper often to move to some of these places. Yes, there's a perception or perhaps even a reality of more freedom in some of these places. But it's not just mom and dad moving, packing up the Buick Skylark and heading south. It's major companies as well. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, for example, if you look at a lot of tech companies in California, you know, they they ultimately said what every other company said, which is, you know, you can work from home for now. 
And then they started hearing from their workers, you know, who said, look, I'd, I'd like to work from home on, on a long term, you know, in the long term. And mm-hmm. so a lot of tech companies, because because the labor market became so tight um, in order to keep their workers and in order to successfully recruit workers in this, you know, ultimately tight labor market, they 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 had to give them the option to work from home over the long term. And so you had companies that, you know, for example, I talked with a fintech company that was based in Los Angeles, and they very quickly said, you know, all their 900 workers could work from home, work from any state they wanted to, which meant that the company itself no longer had to be based in LA, where real estate and office space is particularly expensive. So that company was able to move to Austin, Texas, and basically slash its own real estate costs. And it was also able to to more aggressively recruit workers by saying, look, if you come work for us, you know, we will, you you can work where, wherever you want. I think that's a huge part of what's going on. I mean, maybe Austin is no longer the cheapest place in the world to live, but the truth is, if you move to Texas and you live someplace in the suburbs of Dallas or Austin or Houston or even San Antonio and other places, the truth is, you get a lot more bang for your buck. I mean, let's be honest about it. A half million dollars there will get you an actual house, a home, a yard. Uh, whereas a half million dollars in a place like Los Angeles or somewhere in the uh, boroughs of New York City, it's not going to get you much. By the way, we talked about some of these companies that are moving from their headquarters, from blue states to red states. You have places like Citadel uh, moving its headquarters from Chicago to Miami, Caterpillar uh, moving from Illinois to Texas. I'm just curious, Josh, do you think this is sort of a blip in our history or is this part of a longer trend, a wave, if you will? Yeah, you know, again, some of these were pre-existing trends and the pandemic accelerated these trends, mm. you know, but I think, again, you have companies and workers responding to economic incentives, but, you know, the economy works in in cycles. Um, and so what we're seeing right now, as you mentioned, is that places like Boston and Miami and Nashville are seeing some of the biggest home price growth in the pandemic. And so, you know, those places are now starting to become more expensive. What happens five years from now when, you know, Austin is already dealing with big traffic problems and skyrocketing home prices and, you know, inflation is is really soaring in these places because so many people have moved there. They don't necessarily have the infrastructure um, to handle such an influx of people. Um, and so, you know, what happens when these places start to lose the price advantage that they had over LA and San Francisco? Will, will we see some of these trends go back? Um, so I do think that that's a really good point. I'm just curious, from your perspective and based on your research, it does appear certainly that these states have, these red states we're talking about, have really rebounded far more quickly when compared to their blue state rivals. Yes, we talked about job growth. Yes, we've talked about migration patterns. But I'm just curious about their economic policies. You talk about lower tax havens. Uh, you talk about ways to not pay state tax. How much of an influence do you think that's having, and will that continue to sort of siphon people out of these pockets? I know places like Connecticut, for example, has seen a pretty large outward migration, Illinois in particular, Josh. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the the other question I had going into the story was how much did the pandemic policies have to do with this? There is research that shows that, you know, the pandemic restrictions that a lot of these blue states put in place were at least one factor. They, they might not have been the biggest factor, but they did influence some people to move to some of these red states. The idea being you know, if if uh, states that that were more likely to close schools and remove to and move to remote learning, 
those were some of the areas that lost a lot of families who then ended up in, in some cases moving to states that kept schools open like Florida. So it wasn't the biggest factor, but it was certainly a factor for some families. Um, now, there was something of a trade-off there because there is research to show that you know states that clamped down and had more restrictions in general, not in every case, but in general had fewer deaths, fewer COVID deaths, fewer infections than states that had more open open policies. So, you know, it's it's not that there were no costs. There were in some cases human costs um, here, but the 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 trade-off is is that those states that had more open policies when it came to pandemic restrictions have seen the strongest economic growth like Florida. Yeah, I think a lot of people felt like, look, I'm willing to personally roll the dice, for lack of a better description, uh, on myself, on my family. We will do what we can do to keep ourselves safe. And if that means being able to live our lives as Americans in some of these uh, red states, then they're willing to do that and leave the more uh, restrictive environs uh, of the uh, coast and in particular the Northeast. You know, I want to ask you this before we uh, wrap it up here. When I look at migration patterns, I'm always pointing back in history. I think of the great migration of African Americans from the South to the, the Midwest and to the Northeast for factory jobs. Uh, oh, maybe 75, 80 years ago. I think about people in the East in general, uh, whether it be baseball teams or Americans leaving New York and heading west to California. I'm just wondering, Josh, do you think, again, that this is something that we'll be talking about, you and I and researchers, when they look at this storyline, will they say, hmm, boy, that started something during the pandemic, and now we've seen this massive shift of the U.S. population away from the coast and perhaps more pocketed to places in the south. What do you think? Yes, I do think that this will be one of the, you know, the the lasting changes of the pandemic. Keep in mind, you know, a lot of these workers who moved, they tended to be upper income, income, they tended to be college graduates, and so they had the ability to move because they're those were the workers that had most access to, you know, work from home who worked for who are more likely to work from employers that that offered this. And what we're seeing right now is a lot of companies are trying to get these workers to come back into the office. And so I do wonder, you know, over the long term, particularly as the labor market, if it shifts back to being a looser market, not as tight, if unemployment goes up, will companies have more leeway to require workers to come back to the office? But I do think that some of these changes are really going going to last a long time. I think you'll see this last in particular in places like California, where I'm sure there are pockets that will rebound. But when you look at the state's School enrollment, for example, when it starts trending one way and families are getting smaller and people are deciding to move to places like Nevada and Arizona and Colorado, again, this can sort of be be a trend that uh, the state will have to contend with in other places, quite frankly. Josh Mitchell, real pleasure chatting with you. We appreciate your time today. Yes, sure. Thank you. That will do it for this week's Fox News Rundown from Washington. Next week, we'll have some new election data to help us understand the midterm environment. Maryland voters will begin the process of deciding who will replace Larry Hogan, a popular Republican governor in a deep blue state. In Congress, we'll try to move forward on a long-stalled semiconductor funding bill that both parties say is essential to staying competitive with China and shoring up the supply chain. But will we see a bipartisan breakthrough? Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay in touch with those you care about. For all of us at Fox News Radio, thank you for listening. I'm Jared Halpern. 
from Washington. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.